0: As I said earlier, Pastor Scott is at a funeral um, this weekend, so please keep him in your prayers if you think about it. Um, I wasn't going to use this, but it's just too good of an illustration to use, so we're going to do it anyways. Um, So this past year, um, me and uh, my wife Cammie and um, we had seven, eight students, go to districts this last year. And the speaker this year was a guy named Reed Cappel, who's from Kansas City. And um, he used this illustration. Do is, is what we believe, does what we believe affect us externally? And his example was, <clears throat> if you're at a water fountain... And you're drinking out of that water fountain. If I decide that the only way to drink out of a water fountain is to just make out with it, just get my mouth all over that thing, will that affect anyone else? Yeah, yeah, it will. A little bit. A little bit, right? <laughs> Would any of you like to uh, drink out of that water fountain after, uh, after I was at it? No, I don't think so. We're talking about 1 Samuel this, this morning. We're talking about Samuel and his early life. And <clears throat> a couple of the characters that we're going to run into, they had a problem with unbelief. They had a problem with understanding who God was and believing that who he said he was, was who he was. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, um, chapter 1, we're going to start at the very start of the book. Um, just a little background. Samuel, First Samuel, falls in kind of an in-between, this part of the book at least, an in-between time in Israel's history. On one side, you've got the judges. Last time when I preached, I did um, Samson. So now we're just kind of continuing, all right? So we had Samson, and then um, he's kind of the last normal judge. Samuel's a transition judge, but he's the last true judge. And um, Samuel falls in kind of the cycle of judges at a, at a weird point. We talked through um, the cycle, right? So you've got silence. Everything's at peace. Nothing's happening in Israel. And then it's followed by sin. Israel decides that they would follow their own urges, their own desires and not follow God's way and they would start worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. <laughs> so God would throw them to whatever country was available. There were the Midianites, the Ammonites. The Philistines are the ones that we're going to talk about today. And the, Phil- the Philistines, or whatever country was in control, would enslave them. So we have slavery. And then that is followed by supplication. The people asking God, come and save us. We need you. We need you. And then, um, God would send a judge, um, and there were a bunch of different judges, you got ones that were very, they were miraculous, um, Deborah was one of those, Samson was one of those, and there's ones that were a little less, um, miraculous, and they just have this really small mentions, there's a guy named Ehud, who's pretty much an assassin, um, he's, he's one of my favorites, but they're pretty cool, but, um, Samuel is the final judge, um, and he has a very interesting parallel story to that of Samson. So we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Um, we're covering a lot of ground today, so I'm going to paraphrase a bunch of this, and we're not going to read all of it, but we're going to read some of it. So first Samuel 1: 1, one. There was a certain man from Ramah, Ramatham, uh, a Zephonite from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome son of Elihu, son of Tahu, son of Zeph, and Ephraimite. Great names, I know, great names. <clears throat> he had two wives, one was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. So, in Israel, having multiple wives was not outlawed by God, but was frowned upon. Um, one of the reasons being is because Genesis makes it very clear that God desires marriage to be be between one man and one woman. But what you have here is you have a man with two wives. One is barren, the other isn't. Um, Scholars assume that Hannah was the first wife, but because she bore no children, Elkanah went and found another wife because it was shameful in that culture, in that time, to not have children and be married. Um, So year after year, Every single um, feast day, there were three big feast days, Elkanah would take his family and he would go down to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, the tent of meeting, the temporary temple, um, and he would follow God's word and he would do the feasts and the sacrifices that were necessary. But as he did them, um, Peninnah would make fun of Hannah and tease her and harass her um, to the point of bitterness and tears. Um, It would interrupt their dinners, and and Hannah always had a really hard time with it. But Elkanah loved Hannah and gave her a much bigger portion of everything else. Um, Elkanah would say, this is in verse 8, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Guys, I don't think that's the best... um, the best way to comfort your wife when she's in trouble, but um, so they were finished eating one time. Hannah went to the um, went to the temple or to the tabernacle, and she was praying, and she was praying silently. And in the, in those days, Israelites would pray out loud when they would pray; they would not pray silently. So Eli, who was the high priest at the time, sees her praying, and he's like. What is she doing? Her mouth is moving. No words are coming out. Is, is she drunk? She's drunk. She's definitely drunk. I want, I want to know what his thought process was with that. Like, so he walks up to this woman who's obviously distressed and rocking back and forth and mouthing words. And he comes up and says, put away your wine. Stop drinking. It's like 10 in the morning. What are you doing? And she says, no, 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 no. This is verse 15. No, not so, my Lord. Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was mourning out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I, am, I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may God, the God of Israel grant you what you have asked. Um, so she leaves, and um, they, they go back to where they're from, Ramah. Um, interesting note about Rama. It only is called Rama, um, Ramathil, um, one time. The rest of the time it's just called Rama. So the assumption is that it's kind of a regional name. It's not just a city. So they go back to Rama, but, um, once they're in Rama, she becomes pregnant. They have a, they have a child. Um, it's interesting because she makes this vow, um, this is verse nineteen. Um, they leave, and then um, and then twenty. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Sam, Samuel, saying, "Because I asked the Lord for him." Samuel the name in 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 Hebrew sounds like, "I asked the Lord for him." That's why she names him Samuel. Um. So after the boy was weaned. He was taken to, to Eli, and he was raised at the temple. Um, Elkanah confirms her vow. It's interesting, at this time, um, husbands could actually nullify wives' vows. So um, Elkanah um, confirms the vow, and Samson grows up in the temple. Um, Hannah has a prayer of praise. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But now we get to Eli. So this is the second um second set of characters that we're going to come across. So Eli was the high priest, and he had two sons. Um great names, by the way. Um so this is verse twelve of chapter two. Eli's sons were wicked men, they had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone sacrificed Offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. So this is how how the priests got their living. This is how they lived, was that they would take this fork, they would go um, with the sacrifice, and they would plunge it in, and whatever came out, that was theirs. But usually this was done after the fat had been burnt off, after the best pieces had been given to the Lord. These two sons, their names were Hophni and Phinehas, (coughs) decided that the best way to do this would be they would send a servant, and they would do it just after the cow had been killed. And they would go and they they would say, you need to give us what the priests, the the priest tax pretty much. You need to give us your meat. And they would say, whoa, 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 hold on. We haven't even given the best parts to God yet. And Hophni and Phinehas would say, no, 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 you need to give it to us. So they would take the best parts, sometimes while it was still raw, for themselves. Great priests, right? Super nice guys. Um, and that's how they did it in Shiloh. Um, So and they, they almost got violent sometimes. Verse 16, if the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Um, but Samuel was ministering at the same time as a boy in the temple. So you have this dichotomy of you have the wicked priests, right, Hophni and Phinehas, which, by the way, Their names, Hophni and Phinehas; those are Egyptian names. They're completely different from everyone else's name, um, which is which may some scholars say that means that Eli probably married an Egyptian woman, and um, that's where that's where it comes from, and that's why they are on one level doing what they do. Um, But Eli was was old, um, and as he was as he was um, doing his stuff, a uh, a prophet of the Lord came to him, and the prophet says. Eli, your sons are the worst, all right? Most translations call them scoundrels, right? Which I think is just funny that they call them scoundrels. But um, they're scoundrels. They are just the worst priests ever. They shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And so um, God is going to judge your house. It's going to be bad. Um, This is verse 30 of chapter 2. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, for uh, far be it from me, those who honor me I will honor, but those, those who despise me will be dis- disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your family lying. And you will see distress in my dwelling, although God will be done, be done to Israel." Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line, there will be there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off uh, from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to, and to grieve your heart. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you, and they will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house, and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. So that's the warning that he gets. A little, little somber, little... A little rough, right? Not only will stuff happen to you and your generation, but your father's house will forever be a, a black spot on Israel. Um, not, not the nicest thing. Um, it seems like Eli takes this uh, takes this heart because he does he does try and warn his sons. And um, while he's warning his sons, you find out that they're doing worse things than just taking a bunch of food. Um, they are also sleeping with the women at the at the door to the tabernacle, um, so these were women that had dedicated their lives to God, but they were they were defiling them. Not okay, right? Um, but Eli Eli still gets a second warning. Um, so this is chapter three. This is the the call of e, of Samuel. So Samuel is Sam, Samuel sleeping, and he suddenly hears Samuel Samuel. So he gets up. He goes to Eli. He's like. Eli, what do you want? What do you want? Eli's like, no, I didn't call you. go back to bed so he goes back to bed, right Here's it again Eli, uh, Samuel Samuel gets up what what do you want what what do you want? No no no, no go, I didn't call you. go back to bed a third time, Samuel Samuel uh, Eli what, what what do you want? Um, Eli finally figures out, no, no, this is God talking to him um, and so he says, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling, as the, as the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. So this is uh, verse 11 of chapter 3. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hear of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. So Samuel goes to sleep peacefully after that, right? He definitely doesn't have, like, bad dreams or think about having to talk to Eli in the morning about what, what just happened. So he wakes up, and, uh, and Eli says, hey, um, you know, I, I know you had a vision from the Lord. What what do you say? And Samuel's like, yeah, this is a good message. This is going to go across really well, right? So he he tells him um, and but Eli kind of has to threaten him. He says, verse seventeen, "What was it he said to you?" Eli asked. "Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you." So Samuel told him, um, didn't hide anything. Then Eli said, "He is the Lord. Let him do what God, what is good in His eyes." So Samuel's word after this is much. More, uh, it's, it's, it's respected by the entire, entire um, country as, as a prophet because of this vision. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and then we're going to talk about Israel as a whole. Okay? And this is really where you start seeing that Israel has done some things that weren't good. They're kind of rotten to the core on one level. So um, they are fighting the Philistines, and they go into battle, and Israel loses bad the first day, really bad. Um, and so Israel's like, wait, we, why did we just lose this? We know that in our father's time, Joshua, we we won tons of stuff. So why are we losing? So someone gets this bright idea that they're going to manipulate God into winning the battle for them, right? So where at this time, where does God's presence reside? It resides on the Ark of the Covenant, right? So this big metal box, two cherubim, inside you've got the Ten Commandments and... Um, Aaron's rod and some other stuff so Israel decides that they're going to take that into battle and make that their vanguard it's going to go in first before everyone else and no Philistine is going to stand in front of them Okay. so they bring it into the camp and guess what two um, nice scoundrels are the ones that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant Half and Phinehas right so they're in, um, they're, they're in the camp and the Philistines hear about this and their commander gives them this rousing speech about not being slaves, which is, which is fun. Um, so this is this is a uh, verse uh, seven of chapter four. The Philistines were afraid a god has come into the camp. They said, "We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert." Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews. And they have. Uh, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought harder. And they won. And they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And guess what? Two wonderful scoundrels died on that day. Hophni and Phinehas. So Eli was a big guy. He was an old man. And he was sitting, reclining on his chair in Shiloh. And this Benjamite, one of the tribes of Israel, he runs back. And um, at the time... Eli can't see anything, um, but he he asks, um, "What is the meaning of this uproar?" So there's this outcry about the battle, right? Man hurried over to Eli. So this is verse 15 of chapter 4. Who, um, yeah, 15. Who was 98 years old and whose eyes were so set so that he could not see? He told Eli, "I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. What happened to my son?" Now remember. <clears throat> My sons, remember that the prophecy is that you will know that you are judged because both your sons die on the same day, right? Um, the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled from the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. So, kids, when, when your parents say four on the floor, this is why. That Eli is why, right? That's it. That is it. That's the whole reason. Okay? Um, and it, it, the, the rest of the chapter just talks about, um, this guy, this kid named Ichabod, who is, um, one of Hafni or Phinehas' sons. Um, and he, um, he comes up later, but it's interesting because he's named, Ichabod by his mom, this is verse 21, because the glory had departed from Israel because of the capture of the, ark, the uh, ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Um, so, Yeah. So um, the ark is in in the hands of the Philistines, right? The Philistines have five cities. That's kind of this um, pentagon of cities. And they take the Ark, and they're all celebrating, right? And they put it in their temple, okay? And they put it in front of this guy named Dagon. Dagon is this god who's like half fish, half man. Um, he's real weird looking, real weird looking. But they put it in front of it, and they, they close up the temple for the night, and they leave. And the next morning they come out, and this huge statue of Dagon is bowing down to the Ark, Okay, So they're like, wow, that's weird. Yeah, that's never happened before, right? <clears throat> so they put it back up, and they do their thing for the day, and then they leave, and they come back again. And uh, Dagon is again laying down in front of the ark. Um, so as, as a Philistine, you have to remember that they think in territorial gods. Okay, Every single country had their own god. So for Israel's symbol of, of their god... To be in a different territory and having different effects on their gods is, is unheard of, right? So they're like, whoa, what is happening? Um, it, it falls down again, and its hands break off on the doorpost, um, which I think is kind of an interesting symbol just because um, lots of the, the hands were used in sacrifices, um, in pagan, pagan uh, rituals and that kind of thing. But it's not, it's still get, only getting worse for the Philistines because suddenly they start getting tumors. Okay? Cities start getting tumors. They start getting overrun with rats. So they decide, you know what? <clears throat> Our city's had enough. Let's take it to a different city. Which, which is great, right? So they take it to the next city. Same thing happens. Tumors, rats. So they take it to the next city. Tumors, rats. They take it to that city. Tumors, rats. Get to all five cities. Tumors and rats. So they're like, no, 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 we, we're done with this, we need to send this back. So they send it back, but as they're doing it, they're like, we want to make sure this was actually God that did this, not someone else. So they put it on a cart that's um, pulled by two oxen, and they're on one side of a valley. They know Israel's on the other side of the valley, so they want it to go all the way across the valley, and if it turns to the right or the left, they know that it's not God. But if it goes all the way straight, it's God. Do you think it goes all the way straight? It goes all the way straight. It goes all the way there. Whoa. Thanks, Rich. Um, goes all the way there, and the the Israelites take it. The interesting thing is that the Israelites who take it are not as reverent as the Philistines. Okay? Does it say that anyone tried to touch or look inside of the Ark of the Covenant? No. The Philistines didn't at all. They just left it. Right? The Israelites, they get it. Um, so this is ver- chapter six. All right. Um, so the people, now this is um, uh, chapter 6, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. Um, so they start working on it. And there's, um, there's these uh, golden tumors and rats that the, the Philistines sent as kind of this offering to pay for, like, some of the stuff they did kind of thing. But um, it says in verse 19... But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, um, putting 70 of them to death um, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God to whom will the ark go up from here? Um, So it's very interesting that the Philistines were the ones that actually had a more... Um, a higher view of God on one level than the Israelites. Um, so Samuel ends up going and he he takes out the Philistines. He beats them in battle um, and he solidifies himself as judge. Um, so all of chapter 7 is him beating the, the Philistines and the, the chapter ends with this. Verse 15, Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah judging Israel in all these places but he always went back to Ramah where his house was and there he also judged Israel and he built an altar there to the Lord so that's that's the final judge he's it after this we start the united kingdoms um, which are just as messed up as the judges there's one guy who's in charge for 120 or three guys in charge for 120 years that's the only difference but from this um, from this story you can look and see one thing that is that is really apparent well two things that are really apparent but I want to focus on on one of them specifically Um, God is sovereign and nothing stands between him and his purposes ever Um, lots of times we struggle with that idea right because on one level, God is a personal God that we can talk to, that we can um, have a relationship with, but at the same time, he has this geopolitical purpose that he is working for, towards. Um, when Christ comes back, he's going to set up his own kingdom. And there are pieces that have to be in place for that to happen, and he's doing that. Um, but God's purposes, they, they will not be thwarted. Um, it's interesting, if we go back to chapter 2... Um, Hannah's prayer, all right? Then Hannah prayed, prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak with arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry, hunger no more. She who is barren has bore seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes life. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. God's purposes don't go astray, ever. The fact that the, uh, that the um, Ark of the Covenant wasn't at Shiloh anymore sets the stage for David and Solomon wanting to build the temple and actually having a solid house where the Ark of the Covenant can go. Um, the other big, big thing that I want to bring up is the difference between su- success and failure in life is our regard for the Lord. It says that Hophni and Phinehas had no regard for the Lord. But when you talk about Samuel, it says over and over again that Samuel knew God. All right. Again, the Philistines, they treated the ark on one level with respect. They didn't try and look inside it. They didn't touch it. They didn't try and open it. But when Israel, who are supposed to know who God is, are supposed to know his precepts, they look all over it. They're touching it, whatever happens. Some translations say 50,000 people die that day. Other translations say 70. But um, regardless, there were people that did not treat the ark with reverence. Again, when you look at the battle um, that the Philistines won, Um, over and over again in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God tells them, if you follow me, if you keep my commandments, you will be conquerors. It says that you could walk wherever you walk, you wouldn't have to fight anyone, and that's your land. That's it. And Israel decides, no, 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 we need to try and manipulate God. The real issue wasn't that the Philistines were too strong. It was that Israel was too spiritually weak. That was the issue. Um... First Samuel, over and over again, talks about that pride and unbelief are what brings people down. And that's what this is. Hophni and Phinehas, they were priests in the tabernacle, and they didn't know who God was. So my question for you today is, who is God to you? Okay. If you don't know who God is, if you don't have any regard, as it says, for God... Then I encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to who brought you. Talk to me. Talk to any of the other elders. Um, We would love to talk to you about who who God is. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, our time together, Lord. We thank you that you have a plan, that you are sovereign over all of us, Lord. We ask that you would bless us and help us to trust you well. Help us to um, just help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to put away our pride and help us to believe um, in who you are and what you are doing. We love you, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ian. Let's close our service by standing together and singing a hymn of response. Great song that speaks of the sovereignty of God, sovereign over us. Stand if you can.